0: Only, not only did he fill in for me, but he also organized all the um, uh, the the fair booth um, things going on. Made sure there was schedules for everybody. He you know made the background and all the things that went on behind the scenes there. And he does uh, so much for our youth ministry uh, behind the scenes. And I'm just grateful that he was able to uh, fill in for me uh, last week and share his heart with you. Uh, We are uh, getting close to the end, about two-thirds of the way through the second largest book in the whole Bible, Isaiah. We are in chapter 46, and it starts out like this. Bell bows down, Nebo stoops. Their idols were on the beast and on the camel or cattle. Your carriages were heavily loaded, a burden to the weary beast. They stoop, they bow down together. They could not deliver the burden, but have themselves gone into captivity. Listen to me, O house of Jacob, and all the remnant of the house of Israel who have been upheld by me from birth, who have been carried from the womb, even to your old age. I am he. And even to your gray hairs, I will carry you. I have made and I will bear. Even I will carry and deliver you. So Father, uh, tonight as we approach this um, amazing set of chapters that very few people have ever even read, uh, this obscure part of the book of, Um, Isaiah, that that just speaks volumes to who you are and and the comparison to everything else that uh, we put before you. You are the only one that carries us when we carry all the other idols and things that we put before you so frequently. You are the one that always reaches out to us and bears our burdens. And so, Lord, help us tonight to see your Uh, grace and mercy in our lives when we are rebellious, your your, um, justice and love and truth in our lives when when we um, go astray. Lord, we thank you, we thank you, we thank you so much for the privilege of coming before you, that we can come before you at any time and know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you uh, hear us, Lord. I thank you so much for those that are not only um, making sure the kids are being uh, um, instructed and cared for and, and having fun. I ask that you would be with those that are working behind the scenes, whether it's the our sound team or, or those that are just here on, on campus, making sure that uh, our cars aren't being stolen. Lord, I ask that you would just bless them mightily tonight. Lord, I thank you so much for your word that we can study it and not only um, intellectually understand it, but apply it to our lives tonight, so much so that it changes the way that we approach you. We love you in Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. I love these passages, and and uh, like I prayed, there's so many times we, we read the scriptures, and there's certain passages that we like. We like, you know, the New Testament or the more familiar gospels or the Psalms or the Proverbs, and and we're in this section now in Isaiah, where I'm sure you probably have never even heard a, a sermon on Isaiah 46 or 47 or 48 or 49. You know, these are the the obscure sections between Isaiah 40 and Isaiah 53, which are the most popular in the book of Isaiah. Uh, these are the chapters, though, that establish everything that is needed for the Servant Messiah the one who's going to come and die for the sins of the people. Why do we need a savior if I don't realize I'm a sinner? That I'm in need of a savior. And these passages here establish that fact that not only is Israel a sign to the Gentiles, the nations, those people that have not a single drop of Israelite blood in them. God came to save as well. And he's going to use the Israelites to do that. It first starts off with these idols, the these idols that the nation of Israel had adopted that were basically the idols of Babylon. Uh, the, these were the main deities that the Babylonians worshipped. And, and since the Babylonians were this mighty empire, the Israelites had adopted these gods into their own Worship along with all the Canaanite gods that were more familiar with in the Old Testament, the Baals and the Ashtaras, and, and all these gods that they'd worshiped throughout their history. But even in their exile, what is being taken with them? What is also captured along with the people? Their idols. And look how you you know, and you can see this if you you know imagine a U-Haul or some sort of a moving van. In this case, it's, you know, these big, huge wagons that are literally carrying the idols of the Israeli hosts as they're being taken into captivity in Babylon. Can you imagine this? All these nice gold, silver statues are being carried away that are just worthless uh, paperweights. That's all they are. And what's happening? That they're too being carried away captive. Do you see the picture? The, the sarcastic tone of Isaiah as he's describing this event: wagon after wagon of these useless idols being carried away into captivity. Their idols are on the beasts and on the cattle. Your carriages were heavily loaded, a burden to the weary beast. What is carrying these idols? The cows, the bulls, as, as they're literally creaking along the wheels and the axles being bore down by the weight of these useless idols that were supposed to save them, but are now being taken away captive into Babylon itself. They stoop, they bow down together. They could not deliver the burden, but they themselves have gone into captivity. These useless idols that have mouths and eyes and noses and ears, and yet at the same time cannot speak or hear or see or touch. Just worthless weights, that's all they are being carried by creation itself into captivity. And in comparison, we see the privilege of knowing what God does for us. You see, the idols had to be carried. Well, what does a living God do? Don't you love the contrast? Don't you love the contrast? Who carries us? The picture, I mean, if you really just think about it and just just read it for yourself, the picture is absolutely amazing. Listen to me, O house of Jacob and all the remnant of the house of Israel who have been upheld by me from your birth. Since the time of Abraham itself, God has been there. God has chosen the nation of Israel out of all the other nations on the planet. And God was there carrying them from the very beginning. Multiple times they should have been exterminated. Multiple times throughout history, not not just recent history, not just within the last couple of centuries, but even in, in centuries past, millennial past, God has saved the nation of Israel over and over and over again and many people always ask me why did god choose israel out of all the nations on the planet tonight you're going to find out why you're going to find out why from these passages you see not only was it to confound the rest of the gentiles the rest of the world that god would choose this worthless nation out of all others but also to show that he chooses a nation for his glory, for his own purposes. That one nation that cannot even uh, support itself, God comes along and supports them. Isn't that comforting when you yourself are burdened? When you yourself feel worthless or or useless or or I, I can't do anything, God. Can you imagine the God of the universe coming alongside of you and carrying you? It's truly a privilege. How long does he do it? I love this description. Who have been held by me from birth, who have been carried from the womb. This is describing Israel, a nation, not a a single person, but the nation of Israel as a whole. Even to your old age, I am he. And even to your gray hairs, I will carry you. I have made and I will bear. Even I will carry and will deliver you. You could be watching a Dodgers game right now. You you could be doing anything else right now. And you're here tonight. You're watching online. And you're hearing these amazing words maybe even for the first time from the book of Isaiah. Now, of course, this is reiterated several times in the Bible, but it starts here in the book of Isaiah. God carries his people literally from birth to death. Isn't that a privilege to know? It's awesome, by the way. To whom will you liken me and make me equal And compare me that we should be alike. There is no one like our God. This morning, we were going through the book of Micah on Wednesday mornings. Uh, The men come here and we we meet at 6 a.m. And and we just started the book of uh, Micah. And it, it literally is defined. The theme is defined by the name or the definition of the name Micah. Which is defined as who is like our God. Who is like you? And in the last three verses of that amazing book, it describes who God is in his uniqueness distinct and unique from everything else. The only one who was never created, the only one who existed from eternity past, the only one that forgives all sin completely. And it confounded the Pharisees. Remember when? uh the jesus was in this crowded room this crowded house and all of a sudden the tiles are removed above him and and four friends lay down bring down lower down their paralytic friend what's the first thing that jesus says to that man laying on the stretcher not rise up and walk not how are you doing what's the very first thing he says to that man Your sins are forgiven. Defining himself by the law as God himself. And that's why they cried blasphemy, blasphemy, right? Because only one can forgive sin. Who is that? God himself. The definition of who God is. In Matthew chapter 11, verses 29 and 30, it says this. And you know this, and by the way, the idea is similar to the book of Isaiah taken from these verses. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. That's why we had that big, huge, expensive chair at the fair. That that verse that was plastered there for everyone to see. Come to me. By the way, better than any massage chair is the one who bears us. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Verses six and seven, Isaiah chapter 46, it continues. They lavish gold out of the bag. They weigh silver on the scales. They hire a goldsmith and he makes it into a god. They prostrate themselves. Yes, they worship. They bear it on their shoulder. They carry it and they set it in its place and it stands. From its place, it shall not move. Though one carry or one cries out to it, yet it cannot answer nor save him out of his trouble. How much does this idol weigh that they have to carry on their own shoulders? Can you imagine made out of gold? One of of the heaviest substances known to man, right? Can, Can you imagine that? And then having to carry this idol that's supposed to save you, by the way, you have to carry it to the place where you're gonna put it a mantle or a place for it to be, and then you have to bow down to it after carrying it. The, oh, the absurdity, right? We laugh at them, but many times we do it ourselves. We, we just worship more, you know, sophisticated things, right? <clears throat> we, we put the, you know, the big screen where we want it, or the phones, the cars, the the boats and the houses it's just more elaborate on our end right but but you see the picture the absurdity of what it's like to worship an idol that's literally just a lump of metal that cannot speak hear touch or even smell Verse eight, remember this and show yourselves men. Recall to mind, O you transgressors, remember the former things of old for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. By the way, just read the book of Micah. It's only seven chapters long. And the definition of where all this comes from, the last three verses of the book of Micah, is absolutely amazing. Who is a God like our God out of all the gods on the planet that we make, that we have to carry? And God is the one that carries us and forgives us of our sins. Who is more powerful, the gods that are being taken away to Babylon? Or the God of the Israelite nation that can save them if they just turn to him. Have you ever asked that question yourself? Who do I rely upon? In verse 9, we, we get this theological term. It's called aseity, which means that there is no one like God. There, God is unique. God is self-sufficient. God doesn't need anything. He doesn't need to eat, breathe, uh, have any form of, of communion outside of himself. And yet he made human beings for his own glory and pleasure. He created all the universe when he didn't have to. He chose Israel when he didn't have to. Why does he do it? The answer is in these chapters that we're gonna be reading today. And then, of course, in verse 10, we learn about his omniscience, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. Does God know everything even before it happens? By definition, God must. What what about the idols? What about those lumps of metal or clay or wood? They can't know. It's the craftsman who knows what they're going to look like, designs them before they themselves are even made. And yet they worship these idols as if they are gods. Or the omnipresence of God, verse 11, calling a bird of prey from the east, the man who executes my counsel from a far country. Indeed, I have spoken it. I will also bring it to pass. I have purposed it. I will also do it no matter how far or where you are, is God there. Yes, he is. Not, not a physical representation of a God that sits somewhere that you have to go to. Can I go to God anywhere? Whether I'm here at church or at home or another state or in even another country, can I come before the very presence of a living, righteous God? Yes, we can. Or The omnipotence of God in verses 12 and 13. Listen to me, you stubborn hearted who are far from righteousness. I will bring my righteousness near, it shall not be far off. My salvation shall not linger, and I will place salvation in Zion for Israel, my glory. Normally when we think of the omnipotence of God or God being all powerful, which is the definition of omnipotence, normally we think of strength, right? Might, power. You know, there's always that, you know, uh, uh, question, the theological questions that people like to ask. You know, if God is all powerful, can he create a boulder that he himself can't lift? Have you ever heard that question before? The absurdity of that. You know what the answer is? Well, if he does, he can just drop it right on you. Right? The absurd questions that we think of in terms of God himself that goes beyond all of our knowledge. Do you know what the most powerful thing that God has ever done? He's brought righteousness to an unrighteous people. He's forgiven sins that we ourselves cannot cleanse from ourselves. The most tough stains on the planet that clogs our hearts due to sin, God is able to cleanse. Have you ever seen someone try to scrub a stain off a shower? Does it take a lot of work? Oh, yeah. God brings righteousness, cleanness. The hardest, dirtiest of hearts. God forgives sin. Why? For His glory. Chapter 47 This amazing section continues. Come down and sit in the dust. O virgin daughter of Babylon, sit on the ground without a throne. O daughter of the Chaldeans, for you shall no more be called tender and delicate. Take the millstone and grind meal. Remove your veil, take off the skirt, uncover the thigh, pass through the waters. Your nakedness shall be uncovered, yes, your shame shall be seen. I will take vengeance and I will not arbitrate uh, with a man. In this extremely sarcastic tone, God describes what's going to happen to the most powerful nation on the planet, the Babylonian Empire. Remember from a couple of weeks ago, we learned that the name of the guy who's in charge of the Persian Empire is going to be releasing the Israelites back to the land some 150 years in the future from when this is written, the guy by the name of Cyrus, The Persian Empire is going to come in, led by Cyrus. The Medes and the Persians are going to join forces. These nations that are under the authority and rule of Babylon, they're going to come in and through a secret entrance, and they're going to literally take over the Babylonian Empire in one night. And the Babylonian Empire is going to fall. This once world power. And God is describing in such minute detail, perfect detail, what is going to happen to the Babylonian Empire 150 years before it happens. In fact, the description here is we see that God will punish the Babylonian Empire through their slaves, through the people that they themselves have subjugated. God is going to humiliate the Babylonians. But what does he do for the nation of Israel? As we learned earlier in the book through Cyrus, Cyrus is going to come onto the throne, a guy by the name of Nehemiah, a guy by the name of Ezra. God is going to release them, use this pagan king, this pagan emperor to allow them to come back to the land, the land of Israel. Who is the one that's going to initiate all this? Verse 4, as for, as, far, as for our Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, is his name, the Holy One of Israel. What will God do for the nation of Israel? He will redeem them. Verse five, sit in silence and go into darkness, O daughter of the Chaldeans, for you shall no longer be called the Lady of Kingdoms. I was angry with my people. I have profaned my inheritance and given them into your hand. You showed them no mercy. On the elderly, uh, you laid your yoke very heavily, and you said, I shall be a lady forever, so that you did not take these things to heart, nor remember the latter end of them starting from the very first verse of this chapter all the way through the middle part of this chapter you see a description of babylon that most of the times we don't imagine of them as this delicate refined lady and what what is god going to do to this uh elegant lady called the babylonian empire he's going to make them into a slave can you imagine the, the hang, one of the wonders of the world, by the way? The hanging gardens of Babylon. All these, you know, nice technological advances, whether it's in agriculture or science or, or writing or thought. All, all these terms that we think of in terms of the ingenuity of Babylon. What is God going to do to that mighty empire? He's going to bring it down low. Verse 8, therefore hear this now, you who are given to pleasures, who dwell securely, who say in your heart, I am, and there is no one else beside me. I shall not sit as a widow, nor shall I know the loss of children. Do you see the security of Babylon in their own technology, in their own, um, you know, who they are as a nation? How are they describing themselves? They're using a term that we normally think of only for God himself. That, that term that God gave to Moses, by the way, in the burning bush when Moses said, who shall I say sent me? What is Babylon saying about themselves? And not, not just once, but multiple times in these verses, this phrase, the same phrase of self-existence I don't need anyone else Babylon thoughts. In one night, they're taken down. Exactly, David, yeah. Can you imagine that? Being thought of, and by the way, we, we can look at Babylon and do this all the time, judge them severely. But can we do the same? I got a good retirement. I got, you know, my house paid off. You know, I'm I'm glad if you do. But, But do you understand all these things that we feel secure in? And what can God bring down in one day? The stock market. The value of homes. All the things that we hold secure in our lives that we think will continue to go up job security marriage being alive what can happen in a single night or in a single week or a single month can it all be brought down exactly there's there's only one who is self sufficient there's only one who can claim this title i am There's only one who is the I am who is the I am. There's only one who is Yahweh. The very definition of his personal name that he gave to Moses himself. The privilege of knowing that God is the self-existent one. He doesn't need anything or anyone to exist. How many things do we need? Oh, yeah. We have to have our entertainment. We have to have our, you know, time, you know, uh, management things. We have to have the things that we rely upon just to even sleep or eat or live or even breathe. The medicines. The equipment. Can you imagine that? And what happens if one of those things is out of balance? Do we get scared real easily? Oh, yeah. But who is the only self-existent one? God himself. Verse 9, it continues on, but these two things shall come to you in a moment in one day. In a single instance. By the way, this happens on the night. When you remember the the Daniel is called in, there's this writing on the wall. Everybody's scared, you know, in this party that they're having, literally drinking from the cups that the Babylonian empire has stolen from the temple itself. You can read about this in Daniel. And writing on the wall this, this, these terms, these four words that are written on the wall that the people can't read, the king can't read, all the wise men cannot read. And finally, the king asked his you know, grandma or his mother, uh, do you know anyone that you know, might have the answer for that? Well, there's this old wise man. They used to serve underneath your, your grandfather. And what does Daniel do when he comes in? He reads the words. And that very night the Babylonian Empire was destroyed. Mene, Mene. Quickly, right then, right there. And the Persian Empire walks through the gates. The Medes and the Persians join forces and they walk through. The gates in a moment, in one day, the loss of children and widowhood, they shall come upon you in their fullness because of the multitude of your sorceries, for the great abundance of your enchantments. For you have trusted in your weakness. You have said, No one sees me. Your wisdom and your knowledge have warped you. And you have said in your heart again, This phrase that is only reserved for God Himself, I am. And there is no one else beside me. There is only one who is uncreated. There is only one who is self existent. There is only one who is self reliant. And it is God Himself. God can exist without anything, without any creation without any air, without any planets, without anything. God exists himself. He existed before everything was created. And tonight we're going to find out why he creates creation and why he chooses Israel. It's not for our glory. It's not for because he loves us or or that that it's part of it, but it's not the reason, the initial reason why. It's because God glories himself and shows himself mighty, omnipotent, powerful in his relationship to a people that don't deserve it. By the way, that's you and me too. Isn't that amazing? I love these verses. It continues on just like people today who sin and think, that there are no consequences in Romans chapter 1, verses 22 and 23. This amazing first chapter of one of the most theological books in the Bible says, professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals. And creeping things. Oh, we can think of ourselves as wise. But who's the only one? Who's the only one that's truly knowledgeable of everything? How much time do we spend looking at things that, you know, we we search for, right? How many times do we search for things that in many ways are just temporary? Fact and knowledge but who holds all wisdom it's god you know that verse 11 therefore evil shall come upon you and you shall not know from where it arises and trouble shall fall upon you describing what's going to happen to babylon and you will not be able to put it off. And desolation shall come upon you suddenly, which you shall not know. Stand now with your enchantments and the multitude of your sorceries in which you have labored from your youth. Perhaps you will be able to profit. Perhaps you will uh, prevail. Again, the sarcastic tone, not only in these verses, but in the previous verses, we see these um, you know, terms for sorcery. Uh, for enchantments, all, all these things that, you know, uh, in, in our culture today, we, we think of as myths, right? You You drive down the street and there's the tarot card or the palm reader or the person who's able to predict your future through some sort of reading, right? We still do it today. It's called horoscopes instead, right? It's more scientific, right? But do you understand the Babylonians they too put their futures into the hands of people that they thought could predict the future. These uh, bells and nebos, these idols whom they thought were able to somehow control the future, who is the only one that can predict and control the future. It's God himself. You are wearied in the multitude of your counselors Let now the astrologers, the stargazers, and the monthly prognosticators stand up and save you from what shall come upon you. They had all the astrology back then. They they had all the, you know, star signs even back then. Is there anything new under the sun? Nothing. And and by the way, you know, this is described as literally idol worship. That, that horoscope that you may read just for fun, be careful. Be careful. The, those predictions that we put are, you know, that may be just for entertainment purposes. They're the doorway to demon worship they're the doorway the stepping stone for what is worse to come because when you're putting your future in those things that are by the way the you know the the stars and the constellations and all those amazing creation that god has created who holds all that in the palm of his hand god does it's better to go to the one who created everything rather than creation itself Verse 14 Behold, they shall be a stubble. Those mighty constellations, those stars, uh, those massive suns that are greater than even our sun itself. God can bring it all down in an instance. And by the way, it's all gonna burn one day. With a fervent heat, first Peter says. It's all gonna disappear. They shall not deliver themselves from the power of the flame. It shall not be a coal to be warmed by, nor a fire to sit before. Thus shall they be to you with whom you have labored, your merchants from your youth. They shall wander every one in his quarter. No one shall save you. And by the way, this is written 150 years before this happened. And this is why people always, you know, uh, criticize the book of Isaiah. Well, the first 39 chapters were written probably during the original Isaiah. And then the second half, 40 to 66, which describes Osiris, which describes the downfall of Babylon in very descriptive terms, very detailed terms. Well, that had to have been written later. No, the authority of the word of God, we believe this was written perfectly in its time 150 years before it happens. why why must that be because everything else in the book of isaiah the description of jesus christ not only his birth not only his growing up but also his death and resurrection are also in the book of isaiah it all hinges upon the authority of the word of god is this authoritative is this true it must be mhm oh yeah yeah yes right mhm right yeah thank yep thank you david mhm yeah do you understand what David was saying there? The, the understanding is that not only the, the you know continuity of scripture from Genesis to Revelation, but if one verse is not true, what does that mean for the whole Bible? Yeah. So so we have to understand that, yes, the critics will criticize these verses, but to understand that these verses are there on purpose true to their very definition of the words themselves and it hinges upon the authority of who god is as not only the writer of the words of god of course using isaiah but also inspiring isaiah to write these words revealing to him before they occurred and if it can happen to babylon we know beyond a shadow of a doubt also the description and surety of the word of God to more important things like the Messiah himself. Chapter 48, verse one, hear this, O house of Jacob, who are called by the name of Israel and have come forth from the wellsprings of Judah who swear by the name of the Lord make mention of the God of Israel, but not in truth or in uh, righteousness. Lip service. Oh, I go to church. I go to that church by the way. I was talking to the guy right next to us at the at the fair. He was a uh a, a congressman or running to be a congressman from, from Fresno. And and I asked him, well, do you go to church somewhere? Yeah, I go to a church in Fresno, but but I'm not able to go there that often because you know I'm always traveling, you know. And, and you know, at times, you know, yes, those things can happen, but what if it becomes a lifestyle? Where literally everything else is more important than worship, than God himself. For they call themselves after the holy city and they lean on the God of Israel. The Lord of hosts is his name. I have declared the former things from the beginning. They went forth from my mouth and I caused them to hear it. Suddenly I did them and they came to pass. Who was there? And and by the way, you know, just to ask you a question, the first five books of the Bible, who wrote them? Moses. Was Moses there at creation? No, he wasn't even there during the time of Abraham or Adam and Eve. He wasn't there during the time of, you know, Isaac and Jacob. Those were, those happened centuries before Moses. But who told Moses? On day one, I did this. Day two, I did this. Day three, I did this. Who was the one that told Moses those things? It was God. The whole book of Genesis, the whole book of Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, and then every single sequential book in the Bible, whether it was Joshua or First and Second Chronicles or Ezra or Nehemiah or Isaiah, as we're reading here. Who is the author of every single word of Scripture? God Himself, using Holy, man. God was there in the beginning. They went from my mouth and caused them to hear it suddenly. I did them and they came to pass, describing prophecy, because I knew that you were obstinate and your neck was like an iron sinew and brow bronze. Even from the beginning I have declared to you before it came to pass, I proclaimed it to you. We we call the books from Isaiah to Micah the prophets, divided into two sections, the, the major prophets, Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Daniel, and then we have the, the minor prophets, right? The smaller books. But every single one is a prophetic book. And what was one of the jobs of a prophet? It's to foretell, to tell the future, right? That that was part of the job of a prophet but there was also another job that a prophet had was to forth and isaiah does this perfectly in this section combining the two by the way he, not only is he predicting the future but he's also showing the people of israel their need for the one that's going to create the future that who holds the future in his hand who knows the future before anyone else and just tells it to human beings to confound those that doubt God. And that's why people love to criticize the word of God. Because if you can criticize the word of God and even just one verse or one section of the word of God, what does that do now to the reliability of the whole Bible? And so many people attack it as people at this time did as well. Verse 5, even from the beginning, I've declared it to you before it came to pass. I proclaimed it, lest you should say my idol has done them and my carved image and my molded image have commanded them. Rather than giving the credit to something that itself is created by a human being. God gives the answers to the questions. God shows the future in detailed ways throughout the scriptures. The very birthplace of Jesus Christ, Micah. How he's going to die, suffer, Isaiah 53, Psalms 22. How he's going to be born of a virgin, as we learned all the way back in Isaiah chapter 9. How he's going to become incarnate God in the flesh. Isaiah chapter 7. All these prophetic words literally had to come true. Every single one has to be fulfilled. And we see those fulfilled in Jesus Christ, of course. But do you understand that also shows us how the future, our future also Do we rely upon God for our future? Is he coming again? Yeah. Oh, we can believe that he once came. But do you believe the scriptures that say that he's coming again? First Thessalonians, Revelation. That God is coming back like a thief in the night, in the blink of an eye. It's amazing. The prophecies of God, the reliability of Scripture. See, God sent the prophets to predict and foretold, foretell what would happen so they wouldn't give glory to idols or the horoscopes or the sorceries or the, the various things that you, we kind of, you, the prediction of the stars or, or the, the pattern of a, a, you know, a palm print, right? All those things that we give credit to for the future. It's God that shows the truth of the future clearly. Verse six, you have heard, see all this and will you not declare it? I have made you hear new things from this time, even hidden things and you did not know them. They were created now and not from the beginning and before this day, you have not heard them lest you should say, of course I know them. Have you ever met someone like that or or know someone like that? (laughs) <laughs> you know, they they, they want to have uh, the, you know, the, the news before everyone else, right? So they can tell other people, right? It's gossip. It's the, the juicy thing. And it may not even be, you know, credible news, right? It's just something that'll perk the ears of those that they're telling it to. That can't be true, right? But people love to share the latest and the greatest, right? It's the newest until, you know, next year. It's the sporting events. It's all the things, the lottery, you know, the person who won $700 million or whatever it was, you know, all all these things that go on in our culture. And how long do those things last like that? You know, whoever wins tonight's game, Uh, You know, they'll be disappointed for a little bit, but then what are they going to look forward to? Next year, right? When it all starts over again, right? The word of God is eternal and everlasting. Thank God for that. It's surety. Three times this word is used in verse eight. Surely, surely, surely. Not the name, the surety. The surety of God. The perfect will declared to human beings. Isn't that amazing? I love this. We have a predisposition to sin and pride and we think of ourselves as better than we ought when instead we should be looking to the glory of God. Verse 8, surely... You did not hear. Surely you did not know. Surely from long ago, your ear was not opened for I knew that you would deal very treacherously and were called a transgressor from the womb. Oh, we think our little babies, our grandbabies, our babies are saints, right? What's one of the first words they learn? Mine, no right? God's showing it right here. We all have that predisposition for sin and rebellion, and yet God loves you anyway. God reaches out to you when when you're at your worst, when you're an enemy of God. Thank God for communion tonight, by the way. Verse nine, for my name's sake, I will defer my rage. And for my praise, I will restrain it from you so that I do not cut you off. Is there any good in any human being that God says, oh, I'll choose that person, but not that person. Oh, that person can come because they're good. They did a good thing. No, all of us have sinned. Every single person on the planet. None of us deserve God's grace or mercy. All of us are unrighteous. And yet God reaches out to us when we are at our worst. And the same with the nation of Israel, by the way. Why did God choose Israel? Not for anything that they did. It was all for the glory of God. To show his power and might in a nation that was feeble and weak. And if they were on their own, would have been wiped out in a moment's time. Multiple times throughout history. It's only God that shows himself mighty. And the same thing with us as we see in the next couple of verses. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tested you in the furnace of affliction for my own sake. For my own sake, I will do it. It's not not for you that he's doing it. Why, Why did God send his son? It's not for us. It's for his glory. It's to bring people into a relationship with God himself so that we can know the God of the universe personally so that we can turn to him. For how should my name be profaned and I will not give my glory to another Psalms 106, Ezekiel 20, multiple verses throughout Ezekiel 20. It says this phrase over and over and over again. Nevertheless, he saved them for his name's sake. I, or Psalms 106, verse 8. Ezekiel chapter 20, verse 9, but I acted for my name's sake. Ezekiel chapter 20, verse 14, I acted for my name's sake. Ezekiel chapter 20, verse 22, nevertheless, I withdrew my hand and acted for my name's sake. Ezekiel chapter 20, verse 44, then you will know that I am the Lord when I have dealt with you for my name's sake. God didn't save us for anything that was in us. God saved you for his glory, to show himself glorious. That is the best testimony that you can have. It's not something that I did. It's all what God did for me. And the same thing with the nation of Israel, by the way. Listen to me, O Jacob and Israel, my called. I am he, I am the first, I am also the last. Indeed, my hand has laid the foundation of the earth, and my right hand has stretched out the heavens. When I call to them, they stand up together. Everything in the universe has a will. Everything in the universe is is not only has an order, but a purpose. But what about human beings? We have this, you know, idea that we have this free will, right? I can do anything I want, right? All these things that we do here in this life. I got this job. I got this money. I did this. I did that, right? We're the only thing in all of creation that claims glory for ourselves. What does every part of nature point their glory to? God god as it continues on and you'll see this the nation of israel is the very description of what it means to be prideful all of you assemble yourselves and hear who among them has declared these things the lord loves him he shall do his pleasure on babylon and his arm shall be against the Chaldeans. I, even I have spoken. Yes, I have called him, I have brought him, and his way will prosper. Describing what God did to the Babylonian Empire. You see, the Babylonian Empire at this time was not the first great world power that was, you know, had conquered Israel. There was an empire before the Assyrians. The Assyrians come in, they destroy the northern kingdom of Israel, the, the 12 tribes in the north, the capital, Samaria. They come in and they destroy them, 722 BC. And then in 586, the Babylonians, who had conquered the Assyrians, come in and they conquer Jerusalem. Who raised up both of those nations? God did. For his purposes, for his glory. Read the book of Habakkuk, three chapters long. Three questions in that book. Why, God, did you use an unholy, sinful nation to judge your people? Why did you do it, God? Why would God choose a man like Cyrus that we read about earlier? Why would God choose the Babylonians when they were supposed to be worse than the Israelites, when they were not chosen, when they were sinful, when they were unrighteous? Why does God work in history? Because it's his story. It's his glory. It's his results in all of history and the future itself. And God holds it all for his glory. Thank God that we have the Bible that reveals it to us. Come near to me, hear this. I have not spoken in secret from the beginning. From the time that I was, I was there. And now the Lord God and his spirit have sent me. By the way, the Trinity is shown perfectly in these verses. Who was there in the very beginning of creation itself, before creation? Who was the one, literally, that as we see here, Father, Son, and Spirit? The servant Messiah, sent the one being sent, Jesus Christ. The Spirit of God that hovered over the deep, that was there at creation itself. And then God the Father. The Lord God. In perfect Unison in perfect counsel, in perfect self-existence before everything was ever created. God was there in perfect communion, in perfect love, in perfect wisdom, in perfect prophetic words describing not some plan B that just had to be happened because everything was going chaotically in creation. No. Everything was always has been a plan A in the eyes of God. He knew he would send his son to die for us. It didn't wasn't planned after Adam and Eve sinned. It was always planned before as we see in these verses. Verses 17, 18 and 19. Uh, says the Lord your redeemer the holy one of Israel I am the Lord your God who teaches you to profit who leads you by the way you should go oh that you had heeded my commandments then your, pe- your peace would have been like a river and your righteousness like the waves of the sea your descendants also would be like the sand and the offspring of your body like the grains of sand his name would not have been cut off nor destroyed from before me and just like the Israelites as it's describing here we too if we obey God, what will happen? We will be in the perfect will of God. And God blesses. But unlike the nation of Israel, so many times we, you know, like the nation of Israel, we so many times we also rebel. And what does God bring into our lives? Consequences for our sins. In Deuteronomy chapter 28, you can read the whole chapter, but Just a couple of verses from there, it says, Now it shall come to pass, if you diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God, to observe carefully all his commandments, which I command you today, that the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. And all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you, because you obey the voice of the Lord your God. And then just ten verses later, Uh, verse 15 it says, but it shall come to pass if you do not obey the voice of the Lord your God to observe carefully all his commandments and his statutes, which I command you today that all these curses will come upon you and overtake you. And what is happening to the nation of Israel through the discipline of God, through the Babylonian empire. For 70 years, they're going to be removed from their promised land. They're going to be taken to a foreign nation and they're going to have to live in a country where they cannot understand the words of for 70 years. No temple, no land filled with milk and honey. None of their own houses that they themselves have built. They will be slaves in a foreign country for 70 years. Why? Because they disobeyed uh, God. But then in verse 20, and I love this, go forth from Babylon, free from, flee from the Chaldeans with a voice of singing, declare, proclaim this, utter it to the end of the earth, say the Lord has redeemed his servant Jacob. 70 years to the day, literally, the nation of Israel will be allowed back into the land. They will have to start all over, but they will be redeemed. God will redeem his rebellious people, his stiff-necked, hard-hearted people. God will redeem them. Why? Always for the glory of God. Always for the glory of God. And the same is true in our lives, by the way. God redeems us for his glory. And they did not thirst when they were led through the deserts. He caused the waters to flow from the rock. For them, he also split the rock and the waters gushed out. There is no peace, says the Lord, for uh, the, the wicked. And you remember, there was two times when Moses struck the rock. The second time he did it, it was rebellion. He, he struck the rock because he was angry. But there was the first time that God, uh, Moses struck the rock, God told him to. And he was supposed to strike the rock one time in prediction of, of how Jesus Christ was going to be struck. In Exodus chapter 17 verses 5 through 6 we get the story. And the Lord said to Moses go on from the people or before the people and take with you some of the elders of Israel also taking your hand your rod with which you struck the river and go behold I will stand before you there on the rock of Ho- in Horeb and you shall strike the rock and water will come out of it. That the people may drink, and Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. Water coming from this dry dead rock. Living water for the people of Israel in the wilderness, God providing for them. Chapter 49, we'll just read the beginning here. There's a reason why. Listen, O coastlands, to me, and take heed, you people from afar. The Lord has called me from the womb, from the matrix of my mother. He has made mention of my name. Can you imagine this This word right here in the New King James Version? This this word matrix. Uh, Only time it's ever used in the whole Bible. It's to describe the very, you know, intestines themselves, the inner workings of the human body before the womb was ever, you know, studied or the ovaries or the eggs or all the various things that go in procreation itself. God knew all about it. In perfect harmony, by the way, And he has made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he has hidden me and made me like a polished shaft. In his quiver, he has hidden me. And he said to me, you are my servant, O Israel, in whom I will be glorified. Then I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing and in vain. Yet surely my just reward is with the Lord and my work with my God. And now the Lord says, who formed me from the womb to be a servant, to bring Jacob back to him. For that, so that Israel is gathered to him, for I will be glorious in the eyes of the Lord, and my God shall be my strength. Indeed, he says, it is too small for a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob, to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also give you as a light to the Gentiles, that you should be my salvation to the very ends of the earth. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel. Their holy one to whom man despises. To him whom the nation abhors, To the servant of rulers. Kings shall see and arise. Princes also shall worship. Because the Lord who is faithful. The holy one of Israel. He has chosen you. And tonight we get to take communion. Do you understand these amazing verses? We'll go into more detail next week. But every single one describes what Jesus did for us on the cross. Why Jesus came as a servant to us so that we can have a relationship with a living God for his glory. And tonight we get to remember that in communion. So I invite you. There's various stations around Uh, this, you know, uh, sanctuary. Just grab a, a cup. As I read this next um, I thought I it fell. okay, thank you. I'm glad Dominique has eyes. <clears throat> this this amazing uh, section as we we read in Matthew. Matthew chapter 26 verse 26 it says, "And as they were eating, Jesus took bread." blessed it and broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And I, I, I love not only on, on the first Sundays of the month, but also on, on the first Wednesdays of the m- month, having the privilege of being able to share communion with you. Because what did that, that Messiah, the servant king, the, the one who came to this earth, not as a, a, you know, a, a conqueror, but as one who brought peace between God and man. The one who who came from the the womb of the virgin that that God himself had designed perfectly. The, The one who came in a manger as a servant for us. What did he do for you on the cross? He suffered and he died so that you could have a relationship with him. So as it says here, take eat. This is my body. Verse 27, then he took the cup and he gave thanks and he gave it to them saying, drink from it, all of you. For this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins." Don't you love that phrase? What did Jesus do for you on the cross? Not only are your sins completely forgiven, but they're removed from you as the depths of the sea or as the east is from the west, our sins have been forgiven and removed. The remission of sins for you and for me. So as you drink this, remember what Jesus Christ did for you. And then that amazing phrase at the very end, the last verse there. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom, as we talked about on Sunday. Not only do we remember what Christ did for us in the past, but we will—we know—we look forward to what we get to experience with Christ in the future. Every time we take communion, we can also remember. Or look forward to the fact that we will get to participate in communion with God forever and ever in his kingdom at that great wedding feast of the lamb. And then verse 30. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. There's this amazing, amazing hymn. I got I got to sing this at my my dad's um, memorial service, and it's been really uh, over the last, especially the last couple of weeks, been really um speaking um, uh, deep in my heart. Uh, it, it says this, and I, I just love these words. My name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. Do you understand the intimacy of a God with us? the privilege of knowing God intimately. To to have your name engraved on his hand and on his heart. To have that amazing white stone that he's gonna give you that has your name on it. That only you can read and he knows. That describes you perfectly. Better than any name that you've ever had nickname here on this earth. To have the intimacy with God. Stand with me, sing the song. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong hand, perfect plea, great high priest whose name is love. Whoever lives and bleeds for me. My name is graven on his hands. My name is written. On his heart, I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me hence depart. No tongue can bid me hence depart. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin because the sinless savior died my sinful soul is counted free for god the justice satisfied to look on him and pardon me to look on him and pardon me behold him there the risen lamb my perfect spotless righteousness, the great unchanger, oh, I am the King of glory and of grace. One with himself, I cannot die. My soul is purchased by his blood. My life is hid with Christ on high, with Christ my Savior and My God, with Christ my Savior and my God. And so, Father, tonight, I thank you so much for the fellowship of not only fellow believers, but also the fellowship with you. And to to feel your Holy Spirit working in our midst tonight is truly better than anything. Lord, I thank you so much for the revealing of your word in these obscure chapters in the book of Isaiah. And that, that you show us beyond a shadow of a doubt, not only the surety of your word, but, but the privilege of knowing that we are included in that assurance as well. Uh, the deep intimacy that you have for us. The the privilege of knowing you personally, never let us take that for granted. That our communion with you would be sweet. And even when the taste from the the bread and and the the juice dissipates from our mouth tonight, uh, that the communion, the remembrance of our communion with you would grow within us day. By day. We thank you for initiating that relationship. We thank you for reaching out to us. We we thank you for reaching out to us who do not deserve it. We thank you for being there for us when we were not worth anything to be around. When we were rebellious and sinful and enemies of you. We thank you. We thank you. We thank you. And so, Lord, tonight I ask you bless these my friends and my family. Help us not to go out from these doors the same as when we entered in, that our lives would be changed by your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. God bless you. Thank you for